The struggle is real. How do I demonstrate compassion to those who seem so self-serving? While standing in the express line at a local grocery store where you're not permitted to have more than 15 items in your cart? By the way, I had nine items. Yes, I counted. And yes, I'm that petty. Hey, that's why they call it the express lane, right? So, when this gal in front of me divided her food items, far more than 15 items were in her cart, mind you, yes, I counted. And I think we've already established that, yes, I'm that petty. Into three separate transactions of 15 or less items, whereby the total transaction time lasted for about 15 minutes. So much for the express lane, right? The cashier was apologetic, and by this time, the line had gone several deep. I wasn't sure how I felt by this time. She clearly didn't care about how the store set things up to be of greater convenience to its customer base, but on the other hand, she didn't look like she was having the best of days either. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 52nd episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. historical context that puts you in the action. Do I say something or do I let it go? Come on, it's taking 15 minutes, would be countered by, it's only 15 minutes, dude. What's the big deal? I know, these are clearly first world issues. Have I mentioned that, yes, I'm that petty? Now, imagine a far greater offense being committed between two warring families or countries where the issue is not centered around being inconvenienced at a grocery store's checkout line. No, this struggle is several hundreds of years in the making, replete with multiple skirmishes from both sides over the years. Now, Imagine an agent of peace from one family taking huge risks to bridge the divide between the two warring factions. No doubt this agent would be met with a high level of suspicion. The other family would hate her, and her own family would likely deem her a traitor. As Paul and Barnabas and Titus make their way into Jerusalem, Titus has some key questions that opens up a larger discussion about Samaria. And with that, let's get started. There it is, Barnabas exclaims as he points out the city below to Titus, Jerusalem. The three stop for a moment to take in the view of the city protected by the foreboding layer of walls in front of it. Appreciating Titus's fascination, Paul points out a nearby boulder and suggests Titus to climb up. You might get a better view from up there. That okay? Titus asks. Barnabas nudges him towards the rock and smiles. That's right. This is your first time here. Get up there, man. He then looks at Paul and asks, Are you climbing too? Nah, you go ahead, Paul replies. I'll only trip and fall off, he jokes. One of us at least needs to make it there unscathed. Your vote of confidence is reassuring, Barnabas chides. We'll be back. Taking in a fuller view of the city below, Titus whistles. Is it what you thought it would be? Barnabas asks, while patting Titus on the shoulder. Um, well, yeah, Titus responds while still in awe. There's a lot of history down there, Barnabas replies. 
pointing towards the city's east end. There is the Mount of Olives up there on top of the hill. Peter and John have talked much about their time spent with Jesus on that mountain and on the other side of it. In fact, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, he started at the top and worked his way down there. Barnabas says, as he directs with his finger, down there is the Garden of Gethsemane. Right there, you can just see the olive grove. That is where he was betrayed and arrested. He was then taken over there. Barnabas points in the general direction of the Temple Mount. You can make out only the tops of those buildings from here, but that, I think, is the Hall of Hewn Stones. That's where the Sanhedrin meets, so he was taken there before them. Where was he crucified, Titus asks. Good question, Barnabas responds as he points to a closer part of the city. Those walls right over there, they weren't there before. That's part of the third wall started by Herod Agrippa before he died, and by the looks of it, there's still a lot to be done. Calvary is just on the other side of those walls over there. With so much building going on, I suspect it's harder to locate these days. It was just along the main road heading into the city, but with Agrippa's ambitious plan to emulate his grandfather, Herod the Great, there's a lot of new construction going on. Can I ask you a question? Titus asks. You just did, Barnabas teases. Embarrassed by his approach, Titus blushes and says, I I mean about Samaria and the people there. Barnabas sighs and says, that could be a loaded question. The Jews and the Samaritans have a long history of bad blood between them. Yeah, that was my sense, Titus says. I I guess I don't understand. Okay, well, what do you want to know? Barnabas asks as he looks down at Paul standing below. Hey, we'd better get going. Paul looks anxious to get moving down there. I bet he can speak more authoritatively into this matter anyway. Well, Titus asks, I don't understand how two groups of people can hate each other so much. Hurting people hurt people, Barnabas replies and then shrugs. That's just what happens when one group offends another. When somebody hurts another, both sides will go back to their corners for a while, but they'll come out swinging on another day. He pauses to process what he just said and continues. Funny thing about it, it's the bitterness that takes root in a person who's been offended. He then talks poorly about the other guy to anyone who will listen. He shares it with his kids, and then the hatred is passed along to each child and grandchild. Over time, and several generations down the line, the back-and-forth skirmishes of wrongs being committed to one another continue on, creating this cycle of never-ending hatred. Barnabas then responds to Titus, Isn't that Satan's game? Steal, kill, and destroy one another? He sighs. I guess that's the beauty of Jesus' approach. Genuine love can cut through an entire history of hatred. After all, how do you hate those who show compassion to you? Taking a moment to stop, Jasher turns around to see the road he and his donkey have hiked so far. We're only halfway there, he sighs, as he turns back to see the steep meandering road ahead of them. Loosely holding the leash to his donkey, he turns and says, I bet you wish this was over too, eh, Tommy? His eyes consume the barren, sand-covered landscape that typifies the lower Jordan Rift and the northernmost part of the salt sea below. Sweat drips from his brow into his eyes. Using his turban, he wipes his eyes and blots his forehead, doing whatever he can to shield himself from the relentless midday sun. Though not many have traveled the road today, 
he's seen some merchants who seemed friendly enough, always wanting to engage me in conversation just so they could possibly sell me something, he thinks. Striding besides his donkey, Jasher continues to talk. But that's better than the priest who came by. Not a look, not a word, all business, that one, he says as he smirks. Scoping out the mountain ridge in front of him, he becomes preoccupied with counting the peaks. I've got nothing else to do but walk, he says. Why not? Hey, watch where you're going, the voice calls out. You and this beast nearly walked right into me. Alarmed by the voice, he takes his eyes off the mountain ridge and realizes there's a man, a Levite, in front of him. He smiles and says, I'm so sorry. The walk was fairly boring, and so I started counting the mountain peaks up there. He points to the ridge. I must have been zigzagging on the road without realizing it. Maybe you should focus on what's in front of you from here on out, the Levi remarks. You could hurt somebody. Ah, sorry, he says again. I'll pay the road better attention. The man says nothing else and continues walking. Jasher turns to see him walk down the grade and wonders. Maybe I smell really bad. He smells his armpits and winces. Yeah, that might do it, he jokes to himself. Or maybe it's you, Tommy, he says to his animal. But what was up with that guy and the guy before? Hiking up the road that endlessly meanders along the rugged mountainous terrain, the young man sees the pass ahead. A sudden trickle of anxiety enters into his mind as he finally lays eyes upon what he's only heard others talk about. The road of blood, they call it. The road where thieves and thugs rule, he thinks to himself. Eyes newly alert, he studies every conceivable hiding place. Get a hold of yourself, he whispers. There's nobody here, thank God. He looks back at his donkey and suspects that it fears something, too. Maybe Tommy's just feeding off of my fear, he wonders, as he tries to reel his emotions in. Turning around, he suddenly sees a figure, a body laying in plain sight. That's odd, he says suddenly realizing the body's conspicuous placement to be a possible trap he peers at both sides of the road to see if anyone might be waiting in ambush nope nothing he says continuing to look around he then looks down at the naked body and wonders what has happened coming around to the other side he sees visible bruising and lacerations in the head legs and torso areas oh man he says some guys have left you for dead haven't they he bends to check if the man's still alive and sees that he's still breathing. Hey, he calls out. Are you with me? Can you hear me? The man slightly lifts his head in an effort to nod. Oh, man, Jasher exclaims. Are you thirsty? Do you want some water? He extends a skin of water and helps the man take a swig. The man begins to drink. Thank God, the young man says. Hang on, I'll be right back. Shaking his head, he walks over to Tommy and grabs some linens, oil, and wine. He looks around and thinks, This is quite possibly the worst place to stay. We need to get moving. Tending the wounds of the man, Jasher asks, Can you stand up with me? He tries standing the man who leans heavily upon him. Okay, walking is out. Let's get you on, Tommy, he says. He hoists the man up to straddle his donkey, puts away his gear, and slowly begins walking with his new luggage. Completely fatigued by the hike and the added complication of tending to the wounded man, the young Samaritan enters into Bethany to see if someone could tend to the man. 
Upon finding the inn, he walks in the front door and asks the owner of the home for help. Excuse me, Jasher says. The older Jewish man turns around to see the younger man only feet away. Recognizing how the younger man was dressed, the older man asks, Samaritan, yes? Yes, Jasher looks down at his own sandals. Why do you come here when you plainly know we have no dealings with Samaritans? The man asks. Off with you, I have no time. The younger man interrupts. Please hear me out. Right outside on my donkey is a Jewish man who was left for dead on the Jericho Road. The older man's eyes widen and he leaves out the door with Jasher in tow. Please, Jasher pleads. I would like to pay for a room so I can tend to him and make sure he's all right. Would you at least grant us that? Also concerned, the older man calls out for his wife to come and agrees to the younger man's request. Thank you, Jasher says. I will be happy to care for him tonight, but tomorrow I need to continue on for a business meeting. Please, let me give you enough money to care for the man until my return. If you end up spending more than this, just let me know and I'll take care of the bill. Climbing down from the boulder, Barnabas yells out to Paul, What do you think? Turning his head towards the two walking towards him, Paul responds, What do I think about what? The Samaritans, Barnabas asks. What about them? Paul asks. Why is there so much bad blood between them and Israel? Barnabas asks. Paul sighs. Where do I begin with that? He pauses. There's about 900 years of history that goes with that question. What do you mean? Barnabas asks while looking at Titus. There's a lot to it, but when Israel separated itself from Judah, the kingdom that David and Solomon secured was later lost under Jeroboam and Rehoboam's leadership. Israel and Judah would never be the same especially when Jeroboam secured the borders to keep the people of Israel from worshiping in Jerusalem. Instead, Jeroboam created two very similar places of worship, one way north of here in Dan, and the other right at the border between Israel and Judah in the town of Bethel. Interrupting, Barnabas says, but that happened way before the Samaritans came around, didn't it? Only by name, Paul replies. Seeing Barnabas's face contort in confusion, Paul continues, Once Jeroboam set up the false worship system, he unintentionally created a precedence for all sorts of distorted worship practices. Furthermore, his family line didn't stay in power for long, and with each new king in family line, Israel became more and more isolated over the years, especially as it related to their worship of God. The false worship centers gave way to worship in several different places and of several different types of gods. Baal and Ashtoreth worship became front and center, as did multiple distortions of the worship of God. Israel went into a tailspin. Why else would God send prophet after prophet to warn Israel of its future demise? Titus nods his head and asks, But how do the Samaritans fit into all of this? Remember Sebasta? Paul asks. The city? Barnabas asks. What about it? It used to be called Samaria, and it was Israel's capital city built by King Omri nearly 900 years ago, Paul replies. It was destroyed when Shalmaneser, that was the king of the Assyrians, attacked Israel and forced it to pay heavy taxes. Well, King Hoshea of Israel got the idea that if he incentivized Egypt well enough, they would come and fight Israel's battle against Assyria. So he stopped paying Assyria altogether. Well, 
Shalmaneser wasn't too happy with this arrangement, so he threw King Hoshea in prison and invaded Samaria for three years straight. Many of Israel's people who weren't slaughtered were relocated and left to die in several Assyrian cities that lined the Haber River. Wow, Titus says, that's harsh. Definitely, Paul remarks. Now get this, not long afterwards, Assyria relocated other conquered people groups back to Samaria to rebuild and act as a buffer between Assyria and Egypt. Wait, Titus says, Assyria came in and destroyed Israel, shipped off the survivors to live in foreign cities, then repopulated Samaria with other conquered nations? Barnabas looks over at Titus and jokes, Hey, I told you there was a lot to this. He then points at Paul, and look, you just got him started. Paul laughs and says, hey, you asked. Yeah, but you haven't answered my question, Titus replies. Where do the Samaritans come into play here? Paul looks at a determined Titus and responds, you're really bent on this, aren't you? Look, I don't know much about your people outside of what you and the others have shared with me, Titus says. I've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, but this brings it to a whole new level of appreciation. Nodding, Barnabas looks at Titus and says, Believe it or not, the displacement of the Jewish people has happened a few times now. Paul looks at Titus and shrugs. It's true, he says. The Seleucids have done the same thing, relocating the Jewish people from places like Babylon over to Anatolia, using them more or less like a buffer should the kingdom of Pergamum, or later Rome, get the idea to expand their boundaries. He then sighs in resignation. Ever since Israel splintered from Judah, it seems like the hand of God has been against them. Walking through the city gates, the three take in the city's growth over the past decade. Hey, you're not getting off that easy. What about Samaria, though? Titus says. Paul laughs. I guess not. Okay, okay. Well, when Samaria became populated with foreigners, the few Jewish people that remained were not too excited about their arrival. Their language, their culture, their ethics, everything changed and seemed very foreign to the remnant of Jews there in Samaria. Not surprisingly, they complained. So the Assyrian king later sent Israelite priests back to Samaria to teach the freshly relocated group of foreigners to know the Lord. Taking in the history lesson, Titus shares, wow, but interrupting, Paul says, what about the Samaritans? He laughs again. Well, the priests sent back to Samaria to teach the people weren't really priests in the sons of Aaron or Levitical sense. No, they were priests brought back from a displaced Israel. And if you remember what I said earlier, Jeroboam, in a panic decision, appointed priests that were not real priests. He created a false worship system when he bypassed God's appointment of the sons of Aaron. In fact, he changed quite a few things about how God would be worshipped. Consequently, any priest returning from exile some 200 years later was bound to not have things straight. So the worship of God became a bit convoluted by this time. Those who have been forced to resettle in Samaria at this time would rebuild and make new lives for themselves at the instructions of priests that didn't quite have things right. See where this is going? Barnabas asks. Heavy, right? Very, Titus responds. 
Yeah, so these resettled people in Samaria largely made up the Samaritans? Over time, yes, Paul replies, regaining an identity as a pawn in the chess game of a much more powerful nation? It isn't easy. What's worse is when Judah was destroyed and exiled for 70 years. Everything God had established seemed so up in the air. So when the Persians permitted the Jewish return to rebuild Jerusalem, this new group of Jewish people were very excited about setting things right and not repeating the mistakes made by their ancestors. So when they returned to Judah, they had a whole new group of people to contend against. The Samaritans, Titus says. Yes, the Samaritans, Paul replies. Let's just say they never hit it off. And to make things worse, both groups insisted on being right in their worship of God. Consequently, things became heated over time and even resulted in violence. Later, when the threat of Hellenism was a clear and present danger amongst the Jewish people, Hyrcanus campaigned against Hellenism and anything not Jewish. One of the greatest outcries of the Samaritans is when their temple on Mount Gerizim was destroyed by Hyrcanus and the conservative Jewish party, the Hasmoneans. Which probably didn't help the relationship, Barnabas chimes. Um, No, Paul says, not at all. But it wasn't one-sided either. Both sides committed some pretty regrettable crimes against the others. Walking through an inner gate, the three take in the Agora not far away. Hey, we're here, Paul says. Well, I gotta say, it's an odd place to stop, but we're gonna stop here for today. Before Paul, Barnabas, and Titus made their way into Jerusalem, they stopped in Sebaste. Samaria was later renamed by Herod the Great after receiving the city as a gift from Augustus Caesar. But they went there to check in with the Samaritan believers. Some 15 years earlier, Philip and Peter paid them a visit and brought the good news about Jesus with them. Many believed and were baptized and began to assemble regularly. Just like in Tyre, Paul and Barnabas were deeply concerned about the Judaizers who were insisting upon circumcision and other laws that would later trickle in as a requirement to knowing and pleasing God. Stopping by Samaria would be an important gesture made to the church, whereby they would encourage the church to stay the course and not allow Judaism to elbow its way in. Samaria has had a peculiar role in the spread of Christianity. As it was not considered as the house of Israel during the time of Jesus, but it had enough roots and heritage to be regarded as closer to Judaism than any of the Gentiles that had no knowledge of God. Consequently, Jesus commissioned the disciples to make Samaria a priority before the Gentiles. See Acts 1.8 and then chapter 8 verse 4 through 24. No doubt the ministry to Samaria that Jesus, Philip, Peter, and John had earlier on would send a clear message to the Jews of the day that things were radically changing. So what are some takeaways? Well, one takeaway is this. Satan's game is to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10.10 But Jesus is all about abundant living, living in the freedom that comes with knowing and pleasing God. What has happened between the Samaritans and the Jews is by no means unique. Hatred between two people, two families, or even two nations has been the norm for human existence since the beginning of time. 
The risk of showing compassion, as demonstrated by the Good Samaritan, especially in a highly contemptuous and anti-Samaritan city like Jerusalem, made a clear point in Jesus' story. God is made happy by those who demonstrate love to one another. And love means considering the well-being of others before yourselves. The other related thought is this, hurting people hurt people. And hurt people only continue to hurt other people. Weird, right? Yet, that's all they know. The one who has been wounded is likely to become the one who keeps the cycle of wounding others alive and well. What stops the cycle? Ultimately, that requires an act of love, an act of sacrificial selflessness. It means that someone will most likely need to stick his or her neck out and take the risk of bridging the warring divide between herself and the person who has offended her or has been offended by her. Fortunately, that is something God yearns to see happen. God would send such a peace agent to bridge a divide between he and his people, Jesus' sacrificial and selfless work of being crucified and raised from the dead would be the means through how God would honor anyone who seeks after him to be empowered by him to love as he loves. There's so much to that, but that's all we have for this week. I realize we're kind of cutting this part short, but maybe you can leave with this one idea. May you seek out God to be empowered to love as he loves. It's as simple as that. Now, let's move forward together.